this idea that government is beholden to the people, that it has no other source of power except the sovereign people, is still the newest and the most unique idea in all the long history of man's relation to man. I think that we have a core set of values that are enshrined in our Constitution, in our body of law, that are exceptional. What our framers debated that, that, that whole summer in Philadelphia in 1787. Our Constitution begins with the word, we the people of the United States. That is what it means to say that we have a government of laws and not of men. Welcome back to Constitutional Conventions, the official podcast of the Yale Federalist Society. My name is Jonathan Feld, and I'll be your host. I'm joined by my co-host, Zach Austin. And today, we're extremely lucky to have a very special guest. For the first time, we're going to have a current classmate of ours, Dr. Joseph Simmons. Joseph is a 3L from Texas. He has a PhD from the University of Chicago, where he studied modernist literature and was lucky enough to study with the Committee on Social Thought, which is one of the last great academic institutions in the Western Hemisphere, I would say. Uh, home to my one of my personal heroes, Dr. Leon Cass, among many others. And Joseph is the latest in a long line of shining stars to have come down from the midways of Chicago back east. So we're really lucky to have him and we're really excited to talk to him. And I do have to add one note from last week's episode. Zach and I have since gone back to the archives as two nerds like us are wont to do and have discovered that both the Battle of Omdurman and the Battle of Hooge during the Anglo-Sudan War and the First World War respectively are claimed by historians as the last cavalry charge of the British Empire. So it turns out that both Zach and I can be right and we have since signed an armistice in our early 20th century British imperial history long-running conflict. You took the words right out of my mouth, John, but I, I will say this. You left out a crucial part of Joseph's bio, which is that Joseph and I both took alternate dispute resolution last year. And so if things do get spicy again, everyone should know that Joseph is well prepared to mediate our dispute. So welcome, Joseph. Welcome to the show. We might need your professional services sooner rather than later. So Joseph, you're a fellow 3L with me. I wanted to start by just giving listeners insight into land behind the curtain of Oz here. What is it like to be a student in Yale Fed Sock? What have you enjoyed about your last three years? What haven't you enjoyed? And uh, would you do it again? Yeah, glad to be here, Zach and John. Um, would I do it again? Yeah, I'd do it again, hopefully in a three-year stretch where we weren't virtual for half of it for a year and a half. But, you know, it's been a great time for me personally meeting, you know, a lot of like-minded and differently-minded people in FedSoc. We have lots of internal disagreements that we enjoy arguing about, but we have whatever tensions we have with the rest of the school, but I just try not to think about that too much. I'm a scholar at heart. I do my research. I make my arguments, and maybe not as many people are willing to engage as I would like, but there's enough. I should jump in. Joseph is also my Fedvisor, which is, I think, a rather dubious distinction in the chapter. And it's it's been a an interesting match. I think that speaks to some of Joseph's allusions to differences of opinion within the chapter. Both of us just attended the Yale History Department's annual book sale and left with more books than we would like to admit on air. But by the same token, while whereas it seems that Joseph left with books on 
English common law and British constitutional history and the development of Anglo-American culture, I left with books on the early Democratic Republicans, Thomas Jefferson, Lockean theory. And I think that's sums about just about the difference intellectually between Joseph and I. And I think that that stands quite a, a bit about the differences that are in the chapter itself. I think that's right. You know, one of my favorite classes here has been history of the common law in which we learn almost nothing about America, but lots about uh, the courts of equity, uh, star chamber, all that good stuff. Well, Joseph, one of my favorite classes here has actually been your class. And I think uh, it's worth explaining to the listeners what exactly you do as vice president of academic affairs, because this is one of the things that makes Yale FedSoc kind of unique compared to any other group of students, both here and any other chapter kind of across the country. Yeah. So Yale FedSoc has a regular reading group for credit and most of the chapter, if they don't have a time conflict, will sign up for it, you know, for one afternoon a week. And uh, me and my co-vice president of academic affairs, Rob Capodilupo, run the reading group and put together the syllabus. And we uh, have a different topic every semester. And this semester, it's originalism and individual rights. I don't remember what our actual title last semester was, but it was basically constitutional theory, sort of separation of powers, federalism, judicial supremacy, just sort of going through these topics and arguing about them and reading about them. Ordinarily, I would complain that this kind of stuff has to come from a fellow student rather than, say, I don't know, a conservative public law professor at Yale Law School. But I'll make an exception because Joseph is such a shining star, as I said before. Uh, it really is a treat. So we're lucky to have you. Speaking of doing the reading, do we want to talk about your paper, Joseph? Uh, sure. I suppose I can be dragged into talking about that. Well, Joseph, don't sell yourself short. You've written a really wonderful note in the Yale Law Journal that we're here to talk about. It's really a pleasure on the show because we don't get the chance to talk with students all that often, but we want to highlight some of the great scholarship that's coming out of the chapter. You've written a wonderful note in the Yale Law Journal just published called Reconstructing the Bankruptcy Power, an Originalist Approach. You read your bio and bankruptcy is maybe not the first thing that comes to mind. So could you talk a bit just like how did you formulate this idea? I mean, did it just come to you one night in the bathtub? Were you were you reading for history of the common law? Had someone said something profound in the FedSoc reading group? Yeah, um, I actually came to law school with bankruptcy as something I was quite interested in from, from a very uh, impractical point of view, right? I was studying modernist literature, so I cared about words. And contracts are made of words, and they're promises that you make to do something. And then bankruptcy comes in and says, no, you don't have to do what you said. You know, these contracts were going to impair them. And I I thought that was sort of philosophically interesting. Uh, And so then I took a class on bankruptcy law and I thought, you know, this is also just kind of fun. All of the different rules about the automatic stay and the creditors committees and the procedure of how it works. And then I took professors Amar and Calabresi's uh, originalism seminar and I decided to write about bankruptcy and sort of its interaction with this more robust idea of contract where a contract is a kind of sacred promise that you make that you are morally obliged to perform and and you really can't get out of it. And sort of how we got to the point where that's no longer the legal understanding because pretty much any contract can be discharged in bankruptcy if you're insolvent. And that's sort of where it came from. 
So for those like me who didn't take bankruptcy in law school or maybe haven't even gone to law school yet, I do just want to read the abstract real quick, both because it has a great pun and because I think it really sets the stage for what's coming ahead. So here's what Joseph writes. He says, this note responds to two distinct difficulties in the constitutional law of bankruptcy. First, many bankruptcy scholars and practitioners intuit that the 13th Amendment places important limitations on the law of personal bankruptcy. But this intuition is difficult to, and here we go, cash out in a convincing legal argument. Second, modern bankruptcy law requires an expansive construction of the bankruptcy power. But such a construction is difficult to ground in the meaning of the bankruptcy clause in 1789. This note resolves both difficulties by showing how the proper legal construction of the bankruptcy power changed during Reconstruction with the ratification of the 13th Amendment in 1865. Before Reconstruction, the bankruptcy power was limited to the creation of collective creditor remedies against merchants who committed acts of insolvency. The 13th Amendment both granted Congress new powers to legislate against relations of economic domination, including relations between creditors and insolvent debtors, and alter the function that the bankruptcy power plays within the Constitution. These changes amounted to a reconstruction of the bankruptcy power, such that bankruptcy law now has as its primary purpose the provision of a fresh start to the honest, unfortunate debtor. This argument helps ground the constitutionality of both voluntary bankruptcy and corporate bankruptcy, but its most important implications are for consumer bankruptcy law, particularly the status of the debtor's fresh start and the grounds on which it can be denied. All right, so Joseph, let's start with just some definitions here to help everybody in the North Philly suburbs and also the uh, Northern Columbus suburbs who are listening without a law degree. So start by talking to us about what the 13th Amendment is, what the bankruptcy clause is, what a consumer bankruptcy law even means, and just what's the thrust of the paper in in layman's terms? Yeah, um, so the 13th Amendment is you know, ratified in the wake of the Civil War. And, and it says, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as punishment for a crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or the territories it controls. Uh, and so this is the amendment that abolished slavery. It also uh, prohibited involuntary servitude. So it goes a bit beyond slavery, you know, chattel slavery, as it was known in the South. But you can argue about exactly what it covers. Um, the bankruptcy clause. So bankruptcy is odd because contract law and property law and the remedies that creditors have to enforce debts, those are all matters of state law. But bankruptcy is a federal system. And that's because there is a provision in Article 1, Section 8, that says you know Congress has power to make uniform laws on the subject of bankruptcy. And this makes a lot of sense because bankruptcies will often involve lots of people in lots of different states who all have claims against the debtor, right? Uh, if you are in bankruptcy, this isn't just a two-party dispute between you and one creditor. It's basically you saying, as Michael Spott put it, I declare bankruptcy and the entire world hears you and anyone who to whom you owe money uh, is supposed to uh, show up and stake their claim. So it makes sense that this would be federal because it's often going to involve interstate commerce issues. And a lot of people understood it actually to be a sort of extension of the Commerce Clause, uh, serving kind of the same purposes. Now, the tricky thing here, though, is that in 1789, when the original Constitution was ratified, 
it was understood to be this sort of adjunct of the Commerce Clause, and it was understood to specifically have to do with interstate commerce and bankruptcy as it existed in the 18th century was basically for merchants. It was for people who engaged in interstate commerce and so had debts that they owed to parties who weren't present in the jurisdiction where they resided. And so you might need this federal system to come in and offer them this sort of way to resolve these disputing claims. And it was also primarily for the benefit of the creditors. The debtor could get a bankruptcy discharge at the end of the bankruptcy proceedings, so long as they cooperated, and so long as the creditors all got together and voted and said that, yes, they deserve a bankruptcy discharge, they've played along and you know turned over all of their assets. But you were, there wasn't any right to a discharge. And the main purpose of bankruptcy was, again, you know it's for merchants who have all of these interstate and international business dealings. And those are people whose wealth is primarily not in land or in sort of assets that can easily be seized by the creditors. Their wealth is going to be in these, you know, relationships, business relationships they have, um, and maybe in, you know, notes that they can just put in a briefcase and move. So there's a danger that they will simply, you know, pack up and leave town um, and you won't be able to collect against them. That's sort of the origins of bankruptcy is it's a creditor remedy to say, hey, that guy's seems like he's not paying his debts. Um, we're worried he might, you know, just disappear. Let's stop him from doing that. Let's get everyone he owes money to together to make sure he's not sort of paying off some of them when that money should be divided evenly between them. And, you know, let's just make get all of his assets together and divide them. And then at the end, as a sort of carrot for complying with this process, we'll give the debtor a discharge. So, so Joseph, we'll, we'll talk about your methodology here in a second. But one of the questions I have is, you know, obviously we're going to be looking at things really in three different time periods. One is the founding, 1789, original ratification. One is the refounding, so 1865, 13th Amendment. And then one is today. So you lay out these three distinctly modern categories of bankruptcy, uh, voluntary bankruptcy, corporate bankruptcy, and consumer bankruptcy. Uh, I think if I was teleported back to 1789 and I were to try to explain these three things to founders, the first question would be, why are you here? And the second question would be, what are you talking about? So, you know, you, you've talked a little bit about merchants, but, but do these three categories kind of exist as one amorphous blob and then kind of separate themselves out throughout these three time periods? Or are we always talking about three different things as we move through time? No, that's a great question. So I think actually in 1789, we would have been talking about two different things. Corporations, as we know them today, didn't exist. There were corporations, but they each had their own special charter from the legislature. There were no general incorporation laws. You couldn't just you know submit a form to the Secretary of State and get your corporate charter. And they didn't really go bankrupt, in part because you didn't have limited liability in the way we know it today. So the debts would just sort of go through the corporation to the shareholders. So corporate bankruptcy really just wasn't a thing. Everyone did business for the most part under their own name. If you were a merchant, you were entering into these contracts and you were personally liable for all of them. So you really had merchant bankruptcy, 
Um, and then you had, you, you did have non-merchants, whether these were people who didn't own substantial property or people who were farmers or, you know, even aristocrats. They could all become insolvent and unable to pay their debts. They didn't have access to bankruptcy, which was a sort of statutory scheme created by the British Parliament. In 1570 was sort of when the modern bankruptcy uh, history began. As everybody knows, we're big fans of the 1570s here. Oh, yeah, the 1570s, you know, the most important year for bankruptcy. Honestly, one of the most fascinating parts of the paper is your account of, I guess, late imperial British bankruptcy versus insolvency laws and the ways that I think it was 1759 that you wrote about, they basically merged in a way that was not really part of the common law tradition up until just before the founding itself of of the United States. Yeah, that's right. So uh, you had, for all of these other people who weren't merchants, you had basically insolvency laws. And what these did was, well, you had debtors' prisons. And the point of the insolvency law was basically to say, everyone who's in the debtors' prison right now, they can get out. But it doesn't discharge your debts. You you still owe all this money. You just are no longer in debtors' prison, which is good for you. But yeah, then in, in 1759... In, in, in the late 18th century in America, too, the states uh, started experimenting as well. But in, in, in Britain, you had this experiment with a sort of hybrid insolvency bankruptcy law that was really more like an insolvency law that would discharge debts in exchange for turning over assets in sort of the same way that bankruptcy laws did. But The important claim for my argument is that this wasn't a bankruptcy law, and this wouldn't have been understood to be a bankruptcy law, and that this 1759 British statute and also the sort of similar American experiments with different methods of debt relief, this isn't what the Constitution means by bankruptcy. When it was written in 1787 and ratified in 89, uh, I think the best way to read it, bankruptcy, is as the more limited form because it has this relationship to the Commerce Clause and it's about dealing with interstate trade and insolvency in the context of that. Uh, and there's really no need for federal intervention when you just have, you know, some guy going bankrupt and because he owns owes money to the local bank or his landlord. So, so Joseph, this, this whole story and the fact that you know we're changing from the way we look at the law now and going back and making arguments sort of rooted in historic contingencies about the way that actors at the time would understand bankruptcy, uh, it, it raises this question that we often see in originalist scholarship about you know h- how you put yourself in that mindset. So could you just give listeners who are interested in doing this kind of work some flavor into you know how you even learned about what people were thinking? you know, in the 1570s, in the 1750s, at any of these times about, you know, what their, what the law was and then what they might have perceived it to be. What's your research strategy look like? Yeah. Um, so I started by reading, you know, law review articles and books about the legal history of it. And then when I realized it would be important, sort of went and read a lot of the debates at the time from the sort of primary sources. But I think it's, I mean, especially since I'm not a historian and I'm not pretending to be, I think it's important for people who want to do originalist scholarship to 
think of themselves as relying on history, but understanding it sort of through the work of historians and taking seriously the their expertise in you know looking at far more materials than I would be able to and sort of making observations about the societal trends and how people thought about things at the time. And then I think where originalists sort of depart from what has the work of what a legal historian is doing is the, the legal historian is just trying to talk about what the law meant in the society of the time, sort of how people saw it, what the debates were, what the different sides were. The originalist, I think, has to be interested in the question, like, what was the law? The historian will say, ask that question, will say, you know, some people thought it was this, some people thought it was this, some people thought it was this. But the originalist needs a way of deciding what it was. So what was it? (laughs) So I think what it was, was uh, that bankruptcy meant an involuntary creditor remedy against merchant debtors who were insolvent. And by insolvent, I actually ought to say who committed acts of bankruptcy, acts of bankruptcy being a technical term that basically meant actions which, if you performed them, would allow a creditor to trigger bankruptcy proceedings. And I think that's, for various reasons, most of which I've alluded to, the best understanding of the bankruptcy clause in 1787, or 1789. So like, if the question is, what was the law then? I think this is the best answer. And this is you know, not the question that historians are trying to answer. They're trying to answer what were the debates about it. But if we're trying to answer, you know, what was the law then? On the assumption that the law then is the same as the law now, uh, modulo any, you know, legally enacted changes to the law, such as a constitutional amendment, then the way to do that is to you know, try to understand what the law was then and then carry it forward. So, Joseph, I, I really appreciate you talking about your legal historical methodology because I realized in the note there's a, there's a one fun fact that spawns another fun fact, I suppose. You cited this really wonderful book by Bruce Mann called The Republic of Debtors. And the first fun fact is that I have also cited Republic of Debtors in my own dissertation at Cambridge. So I think that's the, the stars are aligned in that respect. The other fun fact being that Professor Mann is at Harvard Law School, and he's currently married to, and has been for quite some time, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren. So very, very, very interesting citation and, and a really great book. But I think talking about originalism and originalist methodology, you advance a really interesting methodological argument, maybe interpretive argument about how to view the 13th Amendment in light of the bankruptcy clause. And I think if I'm re- if I'm reading you right or correctly, you make the argument that most scholars of bankruptcy see the 13th Amendment as an external constraint on the bankruptcy power as it exists in Congress. And you read it, and I think this is a really clever turn of phrase, you read the Reconstruction Amendments as reconstructive amendments in a way modulating the bankruptcy power to make more in a more individualistic debtor focused power that leads to the kind of melding of insolvency and bankruptcy that we see in kind of modern policy and, and law. And I guess just I'd, I'd love to hear more from you on the kind of way that you're dealing with the originalist turn in terms of, as Zach put it, the founding and maybe the second founding and how that influences the view of the Constitution in light of the bankruptcy clause. Yeah. So there is a sort of threefold pun in the title of the piece, right? It's reconstructing 
the bankruptcy power. And reconstruction has sort of three possible meanings here, or three relevant meanings in the area of the constitutional law of bankruptcy. One is, this is the period of reconstruction, right? Uh, Post-Civil War, there is this project of reconstructing the South and also sort of reconstructing uh, the constitutional order. Second, there's this concept of legal construction, which is, so uh, Professor Lawrence Solem draws this, I think, very helpful distinction between interpretation and construction. And interpretation is where you identify what is the sort of linguistic meaning of the provision. And construction is where you identify the legal effect of the provision. So when I said that the law of bankruptcy in 1789 was bankruptcy meant this collective creditor remedies against merchant debtors who commit acts of insolvency, that's a construction of the provision. The linguistic meaning of it is, I mean, bankruptcy sort of is multivalent and means this legal proceeding, but it, it also means insolvency in a more colloquial sense. Uh, you know, just I'm bankrupt. You can be bankrupt even if you're not in a bankruptcy proceeding. And reconstruction is when some event, such as the ratification of one of the reconstruction amendments, these are the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments, reconstruction is when you want to alter your construction of the provision because the rest of the Constitution looks different. Uh, and I think it's in, sort of a fun puzzle. How do you do this? And how do you do it rigorously rather than just saying, well, you know, the Constitution was last amendment in 1992. That means we just need to like construct uh, the legal effect of the entire Constitution based on, you know, what was the most reasonable construction in 1992. That, that doesn't seem like good originalism. The third meaning of reconstruction is, you know, sort of in a bankruptcy context, it suggests the actual plan of reorganization that you're going to use to rearrange the, the debtor's debts. So that's, uh, I think, maybe what ultimately drove me to adopt this title is, is this threefold pun that um, I quite liked. But, I mean, I could also say something about what the actual argument for the uh, <laughs> position is. It's, uh, you know, in, in literature, uh, puns count as arguments, but perhaps they don't in, in the legal context. Maybe, maybe at Yale Law School they do too, though. Maybe, yes. maybe somewhere deep down in our hearts. I think so. But, I mean, legally speaking, I think at a broad level, the intuition that the 13th Amendment changed bankruptcy makes a lot of sense. Bankruptcy is today about protecting debtors from sort of oppressive creditor remedies. And the idea that this is somehow related to slavery or involuntary servitude makes a lot of historical sense, right? If you go back 2,000 years, um, the relationship between debt and slavery becomes much more obvious. You would often have the remedy for a creditor who, you know, the debtor refused to pay. The remedy would be selling the debtor into slavery. Let me, let me just take an interjection here, Joseph. You're saying it's obvious to you, and I think the, the historical story you tell is kind of compelling, but was there a lot of writing making this connection before this note came out? So there was work connecting the 13th Amendment and bankruptcy, but it was mostly about identifying the limits that the 13th Amendment places on bankruptcy. For example, the idea that a bankruptcy court 
shouldn't compel a debtor into a repayment plan because this is requiring the debtor to perform labor for the benefit of the creditors when the, de- the debtor is you know, not willing to do this. And like I said, I, I, I share the intuition that the 13th Amendment is, is relevant for these concerns, but I just think it, that the connection goes in the other direction. The 13th Amendment is what makes bankruptcy be about protecting debtors against uh, creditor oppression rather than the 13th Amendment sort of showing up outside the bankruptcy system and saying, no, here's a thing that you can't do. Rather, the 13th Amendment sort of goes back behind the scenes and changes what bankruptcy is. And basically, since the Civil War, bankruptcy has been about, primarily about, discharging the debts of insolvent debtors so that they can have a fresh start. And this phrase, fresh start, shows up in the jurisprudence very soon after the Civil War and is carried through to today. This is a standard way of talking about bankruptcy, that the point of bankruptcy is to give debtors a fresh start. And I think that that being the goal of the federal bankruptcy system is intimately connected to the 13th Amendment. So this is fascinating to me because... This is a, a, a moment where we get this new phrase, fresh start, that kind of pervades the rest of the legal order for the last 150 years. And I think this is a really interesting example, even if you don't care a wick about bankruptcy, about what originalist scholarship can do and what it means. So can you just talk about like where this phrase starts popping up and how you're developing this argument? I mean, are you saying that, you know, Senator so-and-so said fresh start and he's the first guy that did it. And after that, you know, he's a trendsetter. Or is there more of a public understanding and approach that develops as you go on? Yeah. So I think the, the phrase fresh start and the idea that it's important to give there as a fresh start would have existed before the 13th Amendment. But the idea that the federal bankruptcy system had the power to do that and to take that as its goal didn't exist. And in the debates over the... So there's a Bankruptcy Act enacted in 1867. Um, This is two years after the ratification of the 13th Amendment. It's not the same Congress because there is an election in between, but it's, you know, a lot of the same people. Um, So I think we can assume that they sort of had an understanding of the 13th Amendment to an extent. And a lot of them did talk about the point of the bankruptcy law as relieving uh, debtors of this oppressive debt, preventing, uh, preventing, they even used the phrase occasionally, debt slavery. And they would make arguments like, uh, you know, we ended slavery and prevented that form of oppression, um, but that's not the only form of oppression that it is important to combat. And so I think it's clear from those debates at the time that this was part of the understanding of why Congress had the power to enact this bankruptcy law. And then in the jurisprudence ever since then, this has been understood that there in a phrase that, you know, perhaps not uh, all listeners of the podcast will like, uh, the Supreme Court has referred to the liberal spirit that pervades the bankruptcy system. And but, but liberal, right, means sort of oriented towards freedom. And I think this is sort of central to 
the understanding of bankruptcy that's developed in the legal system over the last 150 years. So what I would say is societally, you had a development towards understanding bankruptcy in this way before the Civil War, in, in the decades preceding it, um, and then in the debates at the time. And of course, that turn towards developing, towards understanding bankruptcy that way was related to the movement towards understanding slavery to be unacceptable in the North. Um, and there were debates about bankruptcy uh, that were quite intense and, and perhaps second only to I, well, I would say this because I find bankruptcy fascinating, but perhaps second only to debates about slavery in their intensity. Charles Sumner said that the 1841 Bankruptcy Act is what killed the Whig Party. Fighting words <laughs> here on the Yale FedSoc Constitutional <laughs> Conventions podcast. Right. So uh, there was this societal change in the decades before that I think supports this idea that the meaning of bankruptcy changed. And then... Looking after that, I look to the legal sphere and how the, the courts interpreted the bankruptcy system and how they understood uh, it to its constitutional grounding. But I just wanted to take a second to ask you what it was like to be published by the Yale Law Journal, the draft revision process, the submission process, and working with editors as you worked through the paper and went from concept to rough draft to final note. We'd love to hear about that and hear about the process for all the aspiring scholars out there. Uh, yeah, so I, I actually, um, so I sort of assumed it would be rejected, um, <laughs> but I said, what the heck, I'll submit it because I've heard they're required to give feedback. So I'll, I'll submit it, see what they say, and then submit a second version. And, and also, they have a rule that the first draft that you submit has a 15,000 word limit, but the second draft has... I think a 17,500 word limit. So I was sort of hoping that, you know, I would get, I, I, I had this seminar paper that was on the longer side and I was hoping that I would get comments back and then I could incorporate those comments and, you know, get a few more pages and then send it back and get it accepted. But, but it was accepted and then it was, a, it was a decent amount of revision and I think on the whole it made it a, 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 quite a bit better. Some of the revisions were things like being more explicit about what the originalist methodology was, pulling that into a sort of separate section at the beginning. Um, and then the other big change was adding a section at the end talking about the practical implications, which, you know, as a scholar at heart are not always at the forefront of my mind. But, you know, what would uh, litigation about this actually look like if it, if it ever arose? And it did wind up growing substantially. So the final note is probably about 20% longer than what I submitted. I have to ask, as somebody who has also written and published you know, lengthy academic work, have you read the piece since it's been published? Unfortunately. That's, that's the worst nightmare. Did you find anything at all? Any misplaced periods, commas, mis mistyped footnotes that, you, that you, just, you just can't ever go back and fix? I... I, I certainly did. Um, I should probably have proofread it more carefully. I thought I proofread it carefully, but I, I guess no care is enough. I, Despite that, it is a wonderful note. Uh, very yeah. incredibly well-written and incredibly well-thought-out. Really was a pleasure to read. 
which I think is something that is pretty rare of legal notes in general. So I encourage all of our listeners, uh, anyone to, to read it and to others to take a look if they're interested in bankruptcy law, because it really is a really informative piece and, and really, really a wonderful read. Oh, well, thank you. Joseph, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for a really important contribution to the scholarship. And uh, thanks for teaching the class for the last two years. Remember this episode, come exam time. Thank <laughs> you.